It's a pleasure to be here today and uh, to share with you. My uh, relationship with Tyndale actually goes back 10 years. Back in 2008, I uh, took a few courses myself here at the urging of my pastor because I, you know, I have this evangelical streak in me and he just felt, well, you've got to go to Tyndale and do something, you know, get into what God has there for you. So I did. Now, I, I had known, you know, Brian Stiller. I had known Archie McLean, but I didn't want, you know, any kind of heralded entrance. So the, uh, the first class that you take is Rebecca Eidstrom's uh, Biblical Interpretation. Is Rebecca here by any chance today? She's not. Anyway, um, what happened was, in her course, you, you get this exegesis paper at the end that you have to uh, do uh, an essay. And, um, you know, you're given a, uh, a group of uh, topics to choose from. So I chose one. And, and I said to Rebecca, so what, what do you think, how long should this be? And she said, whatever you think is appropriate. So, I mean, you know, I didn't know. Uh, and so my exegesis paper, when I was writing, I just felt the Lord pouring out his spirit upon me. And it was, I handed it in, it was 48 pages. And I was, I was expecting a glorious A plus for what I had done. I got an A minus because of, she said, you can't write things this long. And after that, she put a cap on how long papers could be. So that was my first, my first uh, experience with Tyndale. And since 2012, uh, I've had the privilege of teaching uh, film and faith courses, both in the university college and, uh, and again here in the seminary. Uh, where I'm doing this now twice a week, it's over 10 weeks. And uh, I'm grateful for Arnold Neufeld Fast and for all his encouragement in, in what we're doing. Now today I'm going to focus on the need for preparation. You know, we start each day with, I hope, turning our hearts to God. And uh, that's what we're supposed to do anyway, right? Although there are always other things that are percolating because of what we thought of during the night. And it is important, if we can, to start our day in God's presence, in his word. And sometimes we get rushed through that because we have all these other things in our mind. But if we are able to do it, then we're blessed with a sound mind throughout the day. And I say this because, you know, I try and do it. Sometimes it doesn't happen the way it should, but I know if it doesn't, I'm going to feel the result during the day. Now, preparation and its importance are very significant within Scripture. The first thing I'm going to just briefly 
relate to is David, the David and Goliath story. Now, you know, we hear this David and Goliath story when we're young, when we're kids. And, you know, David goes up to this guy. He's got the slingshot and he kills him. <clears throat> but we don't get the understanding how David was prepared for that moment. Now, often preparation is the result of pain. And it certainly was in David's case that day. I mean, David was a shepherd. And most of the day he was doing nothing. So he'd, you know, practice with his slingshot. He'd set up a target and he'd be firing away. But the scripture tells us that one of the things that happened to David, if you can believe this, is that on separate occasions, he killed a bear and a lion. Now, killing either a bear or a lion would be quite a feat to kill both a bear and a lion. I mean, these things are growling, they're coming at you, they're tearing you apart. And you know, you're all alone, it's nighttime, these guys are out to devour your sheep. But imagine, you know, it, it, it would have taken him weeks to, to heal from all of this. <clears throat> and, he, you, know, he's, you know, he's trying to get close to God. And why did, he, why did he have to deal with this? The fact that he survived it was unbelievable. So when the day comes, I mean, he's been anointed. He's going to be king of Israel. When the day comes that he goes to take supplies to his brothers, and he sees this guy waving his sword, challenging the armies of Israel. David's like, you know, what's happening here? I, I mean, it's only a guy. And, you know, so he goes to Saul, he gets a suit of armor. The armor is just too big. So he's, no, no, I'll just go out and deal with it. He picks up five stones, knowing from experience he's got five shots. And he runs towards Goliath and he nails him, cuts off his head, and a legend is born for all of Israel, what David did that day, because David was prepared. He didn't know why the bear and the lion thing were gonna happen, but through that, God had prepared him for that moment so that David's esteem could be implanted and imprinted through all of Israel for the future that God had for David, which wasn't easy. And, you know, David had his own shortcomings, but he was the king that was uh, anointed and he was a man after God's own heart, the scripture tell us. So I'm now going to move into Jesus and his ministry. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that fundamental to Jesus' ministry was the art of storytelling. You know, we think of his miracles and all that, but there are 39 recorded parables in the New Testament. 39. Now remember, you know, these guys weren't writing everything down that Jesus did, but they did write down 39 parables, stories. 
how did it come that Jesus did these stories, that he came up with this idea of storytelling? That's what I want to talk about briefly. Now, Mark 4.34 and Matthew 13.34 both say exactly the same thing, that Jesus did not speak to people except by means of parables. And parables are stories. So we know that God had injected the Lord, our Lord, with this way of communication. For whatever reason, this was how he had designed Jesus to communicate with people outside of his inner circle, his disciples. Now, the first thing I want to mention, I believe there were three factors which influenced this. And by understanding different and convergent background influences affecting the Son of Man, it should help clarify the methodology of his ministry and how he was able to accomplish his earthly goals. <clears throat> the first of these has to do with his occupation. Matthew, or Mark writes in chapter 6, verse 3. Now, Mark didn't know we were going to be looking at his stuff 2,000 years later. He says that, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Now, that's where the word carpenter comes from. It comes from nowhere else from that verse. Now, Matthew, in 1355, changes it to, Is not this the son of the carpenter? But he wasn't a carpenter. There are two reasons why. First of all, there are no trees around Nazareth. You kind of need trees to become a carpenter, right? I mean, you know, they weren't bringing in the cedars of Lebanon for Jesus to chop up in Nazareth. The second thing is the Greek word tecton, refers to building, not carpentry, building. Now, back then, everything was built out of stone. And Jesus often drew upon images of stone building to illustrate his teaching, appears likely to be exposed to the building trades, and stonework of some, some kind was most likely his trade. In fact, the second century protoevangelium of James refers to Joseph, his father, as a builder of buildings. So, what does this mean? Well, Luke, in his writing in Luke 2.39, refers to Jesus as growing strong. And you compare this to what he says about John the Baptist. Luke writes, and Luke was very careful because he was a doctor. He said the child grew and became strong in spirit. That's Luke 180. Verses the child grew and became strong. Luke 2.39. And Luke reinforces this fact in Luke 2.52, where he says, the child grew in wisdom and became strong in stature. So, 
in my opinion, the scriptural vision, the scriptural Jesus envisioned by Luke was physically robust and powerful. This fact enabled him to make dynamic first impressions upon strangers, particularly his first disciples, rugged Newfoundlander fishermen, who were instantly taken with Jesus because of his presence, because of the brawn and brains that he exuded. He had spent 17 years as a stoneworker, and this guy was a powerful figure. You know, and there are many instances in Scripture which confirm this, but the one that we both we recognize the easiest because it's recorded in all four Gospels, is when Jesus went into the temple where the merchants were selling their sheep and oxen, and he just overturned their tables, fashioned a whip and cords, drove out the sheep, drove out the oxen, drove out these guys, overturned their tables and their coins. And there are two things about this episode. Number one, you didn't see any of his disciples pitching in. You know, you always with, when there's a story about Jesus, it also mentions some of his disciples, especially Peter, right? Peter's always the first guy off the boat. And, but even Peter was shocked, you know, what was going on that day in the temple in Jerusalem. The second thing, the most important thing, <clears throat> is that the merchants who were there, I mean, Jesus was taking away their livelihood. And these guys offered no resistance at all. They were terrified of him because of his physical presence. Okay, so he drove everybody out and no one challenged them. And no one helped them. The second factor, which I believed was important in, to, in the um, evolution of Jesus' communication skill and style, was the impact of his family. The Gospels never reveal when Joseph died, but before he did, he fathered four additional sons, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and several daughters. Matthew 15, 36, no, th sorry, 13, 56, says, and are not all his sisters with us. So all means several. Let's say there were four daughters to go with the four boys. And as the eldest child in the family, Jesus inherited the responsibility of caring for this family and providing for their ongoing physical and spiritual needs. Moreover, ongoing interplay with this family would have guided Jesus in respect to his storytelling expertise. As a keen student of the Torah, and we know this from Luke 12, 42 to 52, when he was 12 years old and shocking 
the uh, teachers of the law in a temple in Jerusalem that Jesus knew his Torah, which means that Joseph had been very diligent bringing up his son in the Torah. So as a keen student of the Torah, Jesus was familiar with the rich stories of our Old Testament and the tapestry of plot and character development of these stories. He could see the value of imparting scriptural truth through engaging the reader's sensibilities and directing them to a consequential emotional response. Emotion is a key word here. In the course of passing on these stories to his siblings, Jesus had the opportunity to learn the art and craft of storytelling, how to organize the dramatic substance of each tale for maximum effect. Bible storytelling would then transpose itself into other storytelling likely practiced at bedtime. And maybe it became a nightly ritual, Jesus and his bedtime story. And not just for his brothers. As we know, Jesus was partial to women, a trait which was clearly derivative from time spent with his sisters. Perhaps they had this special relationship at bedtime, Jesus and his bedtime story, and tales of imagined romance in far-off lands. And can you picture, you know, they're all sitting around by candlelight, and Jesus is saying, now tonight... I'm going to tell you this story. And I know you're going to find it hard to believe, but it is in the Torah. There was this guy, Elijah. And I've told you about Elijah before, but tonight I'm going to tell you about what he did at Mount Carmel. And, you know, how these other priests were there from Baal, and now he brought this fire down. And you're going to find it really hard to believe. He said, I found it hard to believe when I first read it. But trust me, it did happen. It's in the Torah. You know, so that's how it would go, right? Because he had that responsibility. Now, the third contributing factor to Jesus' development in the art of storytelling exists in the landscape of his probable workplace. Nazareth is a bustling city today, but back when Jesus lived, excuse me while I take a bit of water, it was one of the dozens of sleepy towns spread over Galilee. Its population would have numbered about 200. So how did Joseph and his eldest son make a living? You can't support a family of 10 or 11 in this kind of rural setting. Food for the table, clothing for the body have to be bought and paid for. So the only realistic answer to this question is the city of Sephoris, rising 400 feet above the land. A city on a hill cannot be hid, Matthew 4, 514. Just four miles away. Now, Sephoris had recently been raised to quell a military rebellion, so it had to be reconstructed. Herod Antipas 
decided that he would make Sepphoris his royal residence. He had been appointed Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea by Rome, and Sepphoris became the nerve center for Antipas's control of Galilee and Perea. Affairs of state, economy, and culture were administered from the city, and Antipas's reconstruction campaign lasted for decades as Sephorus became a Greco-Roman metropolis, home to 30,000 inhabitants eventually, Jews, Arabs, Greeks, and Romans. Now, much of the story material which appear in Jesus' parables would have been the result of what he witnessed in Sephorus. For example, class distinctions between wealthy landlords and struggling peasants financial disputes between stewards and servants. But the most important influence emanating from Sephorus for Jesus was likely the theater. Greek theater had been established in the cultural landscape for over 400 years. Herod the Great, to please Rome, as these Herods were wont to do, built lavish theaters throughout his kingdom, including a major tribute to Augustus at Caesarea and two amphitheaters at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. Now, pleasing Rome was also a priority for his son, Herod Antipas, and thus he erected at Sephorus a lavish theater which seated, get this, over 4,000 people in Sephorus. It is entirely possible that Jesus worked among the builders of this theater. Once finished, the theater would have been a showcase for the great Greek playwrights, such as Euripides and Sophocles. Audiences would have been treated to classic Greek theater, the disciplined structure of dramatic narrative, and the enlightened technique of Greek stage performance. Now, there is solid evidence, evidence that Jesus did become familiar with the theater because of the repeated use of the word hypocrite. Now, the use of this word is generic to our common vernacular today, but our uses of of this word comes from the Bible, from Jesus' usage. The word appears 17 times, in the New Testament, always within the saying of Jesus, of these occurrences, 13 are in Matthew, 3 in Mark, and 1 in Luke. Jesus uses the word to convey an attitude that he considered unfavorable in respect to scribes and Pharisees who, like stage actors with makeup, could, contra- could convey two contrary sides of a facial expression simultaneously. Now, I know, because I, when I was young as an actor long before I became a Christian I worked in Greek theater and you had two masks on simultaneously one on the front one on the back so that's what they did back then all the actors performing had these two masks on Jesus applied the word because these guys were parading their sanctimonious appearances but were self-serving in their hearts, these Pharisees. And by, uh, uh, 
employing the word hypocrite repeatedly, Jesus indicates that the visual relationship to a stage actor is not only the most relevant to engage, but also the one his audience clearly understands, given their ongoing exposure to Greek theater as a cultural reference point. And by the way, this theater is not a product of conjecture. It has been excavated and today bears witness to the cultural impact contemporary to Jesus' Palestinian community. If so, if one accepts the premise that Jesus and his audience were familiar with the form and expression of Greek theater, then it helps illuminate his developed art of storytelling as a communication strategy which was culturally identifiable in the Greco-Roman world. By working in Sephoris, Jesus had become thoroughly exposed to the Roman culture which Herod Antipas had imported into Galilee. These three factors then, the cultural impact of Sephoris, the family obligations he embraced, and the physical vocation of his the physical training of his vocation were of separate and collective importance to the development of Jesus' ministry, I believe. He spent 13 years, 17 years in preparation for his three years of public ministry. It is no accident that he was born in the circumstances that would challenge him to grow and develop the skills and ability and character, which would sustain him to the cross. God had created the resources necessary for Jesus to accomplish his purposes. He orchestrated the reconstruction of Sephoris through Herod Antipas. He blessed Joseph and Mary with many children, then removed Joseph from the scene. And he directed Jesus vocation, Joseph's vocation that Jesus would inherit for physical and mental strengthening. So, that's the meat of my talk today. And now I'm just going to refer to a couple of uh, incidents to help illustrate in a contemporary context how God does prepare us. Now, as George was kind enough to point out, next Thursday, July the 12th in the evening, we're having a doubleheader, the likes of which you may have never seen here. First of all, a screening of Joseph and Mary, the most believable Joseph and Mary I have ever seen on the screen. Usually they're remote and posturing and wooden. This Joseph and Mary are totally believable. And what I like is they're vulnerable. You know, that's very important as people, that there's a vulnerability about them. Now, the film directed by my friend Roger Christian was shot, and it freaked me out when I first saw it. And the credits, I thought, this can't be true. It was shot in North Bay. <laughs> and, you know, you won't believe it when you see it. And Roger will then explain how he was able to transform North Bay into Palestine. 
you know, not an easy thing to do because you've been watching this North Bay, Palestine, in November. I mean, this is, this is pretty wild. And after the film, we'll have a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Star Wars. The reason being is that Roger was the third person hired on Star Wars, and he won an Oscar for his contribution to art direction, helping shape R2-D2, the Millennium Falcon, the Death Star, and his most famous invention, the lightsaber, the most famous prop in movie history. I will also be explaining how Star Wars came to be made, which Roger didn't even know about. And if you come out that evening, you'll hear that. I'm not saying it today. I'm saying it next Thursday night. So hopefully it's going to be a, a, a special occasion. And we just trust God that he will move by his spirit, not just for believers that night, but for other people who will come here because of Star Wars, but will see Joseph and Mary. So feel free, if you come, to bring a friend or two along who isn't a Christian, but who's just a fan of Star Wars. I mean, it's been around for 40 years. It's a culture phenomena. And it's going to be a pretty cool thing. Now, you know, that sounds grand, but God prepares us for things of the heart, for experiences that are more important than that. Experiences like visiting people in the hospital, praying for those who are sick, helping our neighbors, hospitality. And you know what? That's what I really care about. You know, it's nice to be a filmmaker and do all of this stuff. But what I care about more is touching people, those people who are marginalized or disenfranchised or who need a touch from the Lord. I'll give you an example in clothing, closing. This past Easter, the night before, I was at my brother, my brother was celebrating a milestone birthday. I won't say how old he was, my kid brother. And it was out in Mississauga, and it was a surprise birthday party. So as a result, in case Jesus had, you know, thoughtfully uh, brought some good wine along, I took a Uber home, and uh, the driver was this guy, a really nice guy. I always like to get involved with people when I'm in a space with them. And, you know, he was telling me how he was taking marketing at Seneca and all this stuff. And then when we got in the driveway, I said to him, so are you going to church tomorrow? It's Easter. And he said, I'm a Hindu. And I said, all right, well, that's cool. I have a lot of Hindu friends. And then I said, now, do you understand what it is about Christianity? And he's looking at his watch because he wants to get going to his next pickup. And he said, no. And I said, well, here's the deal. I wasn't always a Christian. And so I understand where you're coming from. 
But the thing about Christianity is that we worship, you call him a prophet. All the religions recognize Jesus as a prophet. The prophet we worship, like your prophets, died, but then he rose from the dead and is living. Now, this guy had never heard this before. So he's saying, really? I said, yeah. I mean, that's why we have Easter, to celebrate his resurrection. And the guy said, what? I mean, what? You know, he's kind of like stunned by all this, not looking at his watch anymore. And I said, can I just pray for you for a moment? So I pray, and he said, okay. So I prayed that God would show up and open his heart to understanding the gospel and make himself real in his life. And he thanked me for that. And just as I was about to open the door and leave, he said, you know, I'm going to be going to church tomorrow. So those are the moments that count, the moments that God prepares us for, sharing the gospel, sharing the love, sharing the reality of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love. I pray, Lord, for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon our minds, upon this gathering. I pray, Lord, that you will keep us mindful of the importance of preparation in our lives, that we might be of service to you, that might we might be sensitive to your spirit and to the reality of who you are. I pray for your blessing now, and I thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.